what was challenging about the decision is that I was giving up seeing patients. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, and, you know, that has been, you know, a motivation and an inspiration. I, I treat cancer patients who, for the most part, you know, have metastatic disease, which means that, you know, they're sadly going to likely die from their cancer at some point. The good news is, you know, we've been able to extend survival significantly, but, it, it, you know, it's always hard leaving patients. And mm -hmm. I'm so grateful that I, you know, have been able to take care of wonderful patients over the course of my career. And they'll always serve as a motivation for, for what I do in, in terms of drug development and always keeping them um, as, as the kind of central focus of why I do what I do. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe bomb today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a former collegiate swimmer. He actually has a dual degree. He has his PhD in immunology and he has his medical degree. So in every sense of the word, he is a doctor. Currently, he's the chief scientific officer of Rain Therapeutics. Welcome to the show, Dr. Robert Double. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, hanging out with me. I know um, you said uh, before we got going that you're headed off to ski this weekend. So I, you know, you're taking the last moment to hang out with me before having a hopefully very enjoyable weekend. So I really appreciate you spending a little bit of time with me. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, I do want to give you a little bit of a hard time uh, just to start off. And I saw on your Twitter account, um, there was a picture of a puppy that you had posted asking about whether you should get this puppy. And I think your, your daughter had put you up to putting a poll up. So I'm wondering if, if, if it was an honest poll, if you, if, if, uh, you know, say you put it up and you're like, if it says yes, I'm definitely getting it. If you already determined you were getting the puppy, what, like, what's the story there? I feel like, getting a pet seems like a, a big chance to leave it up to the internet to say yes or no. Well, I, I think my daughter, uh, my nine-year-old daughter is, is very savvy. I think she knows, you know, my, even my scientific Twitter audience was going to go for the puppy. Uh, uh -huh. uh, and so I think, I think she, she played me there. Uh, we were leaning towards the puppy. I, uh, you know, th that helped push us over the edge. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, I think when it comes to the internet, it, you're going to find very few people that like see baby animals and go, no, I hate that. Don't, don't be involved <laughs> with baby animals in any way. Yeah. And, and you may hear Joey uh, barking in the background now uh, since that poll. So, <laughs> so <laughs> the, the, the puppy did happen. <laughs> but we obviously won't see him because we got the nice background behind you. Um, before we got going too, you we were talking. We were talking about uh, swimming. I was asking about you know kind of what your your background, because um, I I talk to you know any number of uh, levels of athlete, anywhere from basically 
I'll say average Joe. That's not quite accurate, but all the way through pros. Um, and you're telling me you only spent a year swimming in college. Uh, can you tell me what happened there? Um, you know, why only leave after a year? Yeah. So, you know, I, um, you know, swimming is, is often for people a lifetime sport. I started, I would say I started actually on the late side. I started when I was nine years old. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of my, uh, a lot of my colleagues in swimming probably started at, you know, five, six, seven, eight. My kids started a little bit earlier. Um, uh, and, you know, so I'm very seriously in high school, had a very intense uh, uh, coach who, who uh, you know, doubles and triples over Christmas holidays, uh, uh, practice Christmas morning, uh, mm -hmm. despite the fact that we went to a Catholic school. And I think, you know, when I got into college, um, you know, I was excited to swim uh, in college, but was plagued by uh, a bad right knee and, and knee injuries are, are are not the first thing that come to mind when people think about uh, swimming injuries. It's mostly shoulders. Um, and I was a breaststroker, unfortunately, and breaststroker ha breaststroke has a, a kind of an odd lateral move in the knee and can really put a lot of torque on the knee. And, and that's uh, the injury that I was plagued with. And as I tried to do more butterfly and freestyle and, and other strokes uh, uh, to compensate, then I started dealing with some shoulder issues. Mm. And uh, I guess between that and, you know, having finding other things to do in, in college, um, you know, I'd say that's what that's what ended my swimming career or ended my collegiate swimming career. Luckily, I, I've come back to it and, and still love doing it now. Now it's a bit of an addiction, actually. But <laughs> yeah, you know, is I hadn't thought about this when you first mentioned it. And as we're talking about it again here, um, I was kind of curious, like, so you're a breaststroker and, and obviously people see, seem to often specialize like this is a stroke I do like this is it and you build up certain muscle groups for that specific stroke. Um, do you, because of injury or, or personal preference, do people ever or often make a crossover between say like in your case, you know, you're doing the other strokes and that kind of led to other problems. Is that common where, you know, in, in, again, in your case with breaststroking, if you have knee injuries, okay, well let's stop doing that. I'm going to go freestyle or fly or, or back even um, and just say, hey, I'm going to, relatively speaking, suck at this for a while and then get better. Does that happen? I mean, people definitely cross over. Like, you know, I was a breaststroker and, you know, breaststroke's an odd stroke, right? It's, it's so different from butterfly mm. and freestyle and, right. and, and backstroke. I mean, it's double arm, it's underwater. It's, it's, it's very unique. And, you know, maybe I'm just an oddball uh, and a glutton for punishment. Um, so I'd say, you know, people do switch over, but again, the more common injury is, is shoulder injuries and, and that's hard to do anything else. And, you know, I'd say right. it's rare, it's rare that like a backstroker probably becomes a breaststroker or, 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 or such, you know, I think, you know, the practices tend to be more freestyle heavy. Um, and, you know, in high school, I, I found out that butterfly was kind of came naturally to me. I don't know if, again, if it's the kind of simultaneous arm movement or something else. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I transitioned a little bit into butterfly in high school. Um, and, and that was, that was a good thing for me too. And, um, but I, I'd say it's not terribly common, but there are specialists and there. And of course there are some people who are just good at everything, you know, people who do the IM, uh, you know, are, are, are at least, you know, very good at all four strokes. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's a fair point where it's, again, I'm just like, I'm trying to think this out on the fly and 
because it makes sense if you're in one of the other strokes not breaststroke and you hurt your shoulder well like your main your arm is <laughs> out there's no like one armed stroke we're not like doing the side stroke down the pool or anything <laughs> like non-competitive kind of um what would that be a rescue swim where you can only yeah. swim with one arm although maybe we should start that maybe that's Maybe that's the event for injured swimmers where you're like, yeah. all right, everybody that's injured, you're on like injured reserve. You can go do this event and it has to be one arm only. Well, well, there was that short time um, when you could kick underwater the entire length of the pool and come up for like one stroke. And I actually had a, and that was when I was in college, you could do that still. I had a, I had a, I had a friend who was, I think he was a senior when I was a freshman who was a really good backstroker and freestyler. Mm -hmm. And he was such a phenomenal kicker. Even despite his shoulder injuries, he was still a phenomenal uh, a collegiate swimmer because he could kick so well. And, and that was the time when you could do the entire, you know, underwater kick thing. So. Mm -hmm. it's <laughs> that's one of those things where the sport kind of evolves and it like it, and I'm not really in swimming but if you're even farther out than I am it, you're like wait what like what happened what I don't understand and you know, so there's the regulations about you because kicking is so effective speed wise compared to I would think especially breaststroke um you know, you can't just go down the entire pool. You actually have to do your stroke. And I don't know the specifics now on like, you can only go so far and that kind of stuff, but it makes sense when you've, there's essentially a way to circumvent having to do your stroke and still be competitive that eventually the governing body would be like, yeah, this isn't happening anymore. Like <laughs> we're putting a stop to it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, Tell me a little bit about getting into um, your MD PhD program. It's not, you know, I, I think, as I mentioned before we got going, you know, I, don't, I haven't, I don't think I've talked to anybody else with MD PhD, maybe one person that's just not coming to mind. Um, it, it seems like people ch often choose one route or the other, and, and it's kind of specialized to do what you do. So, so how do you end up in a place where you're like, okay, I want to do both because of my particular interests. Yeah, I mean, how I got there, you know, was a, I think probably a pretty common um, story. You know, I hadn't been exposed to much research um, when I was younger and, you know, I had been exposed to doctors and, and found, you know, I thought, well, I'm, I'm really interested in biology and science, being a doctor, you know, makes sense to me. And so that was kind of my, that was my default pathway when I entered college. I thought, oh, I'm certainly going to be pre-med. I'm going to go to medical school. And then uh, I was very fortunate. One of uh, one of the Princeton alumni gave me a summer uh, internship in, in their lab at the Hospital for Special Surgery in, in New York City. And that was my first real exposure to lab-based research. You know, I'd taken courses and, you know, done a little bit of lab-based research in, in classes and such. Um, and just really fell in love with research and kind of came back and talked to, I think, my college counselor. And she's like, you know, there are these programs where you can do a dual degree. So I guess it's for people who really just can't decide what they want to do. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into, right? So here I am, I'm 20 years old. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to do this dual degree, you know? So I'm 20 years old. Uh, little did I know that I wouldn't get my first paying job until I was 37 years old, right? A real paying job. You get paid right. a little bit as a, as a, as a resident. Um, so it was, it, it was 
was a long course, um, but you know, it, it did actually seem attractive to me, um, all jokes aside about being indecisive, but th this idea of kind of doing an MD and a PhD so that you could do patient-specific research, that you could you know, try to um, do research that was more medically relevant, right? So all research is, is really important. Um, you know, the people who discovered CRISPR, you know, at a very basic science level, mm -hmm. you know, that was a phenomenal discovery and, and, the, and the translation, you know, has come later. Um, but, you know, I think I really enjoyed, you know, kind of being on the bubble of, you know, doing, seeing patients and, and doing research. Um, and, and that's, you know, how I, how I came into it. I, I kind of started down one path, found out that I liked something else and, and was lucky enough to realize that there were these programs out there to do both. Um, and you're right, they're not very common. I think when I graduated from my MD PhD program, it's a it's an NIH funded uh, program. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there were only about 120 slots in the country spread across like all of the medical schools. Um, so it's, it's not a common path that people take. You know, the, the beginning of your story talking about being 20 and just being like, okay, let's do it. It, <laughs> it reminds me of like, this, this philosophy, I try to keep though I, I find as I get older, it's uh, a little harder is it's almost like um, being a little naive can be beneficial because sometimes you'll take on things that otherwise if you really understood the scope of you'd be like that's insane I'm not going to do that yeah well you know it's true and, and you know when I'm interviewing students for these programs and they're asking me would you do it again you kind of hesitate a little bit I love what I do it's been a fantastic path but man if I knew what I knew now it, you know I, I you're right I'm glad I was naive because it was a long arduous path to to get where I was and get where I am now and I and I love what I do but man it, you know if I known I'm not sure I would have chosen exactly this path yeah but at the same time to think about it no you know here you are on the other side of it. And the other question that comes to mind is, well, okay, being naive is good, but if I wasn't naive and I did understand the scope of it, is it simply a matter of having more confidence in myself to be able to get through these tasks? <laughs> well, you know, 20 year olds, that's one thing they probably have a lot of is confidence. <laughs> confidence. <laughs> yep. I'll figure it out. No problem. The imposter syndrome comes later, right? <laughs> right, right. Have you dealt with that at all? I know I've had a, a number of guests. It, it reminds me all the way back to like, oh, episode five. I've forgotten her name, um, but her, her 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 episode title is about imposter syndrome. Um, I know it hits a lot of people, um, and you know now you're you're kind of running your own show. Does has that played into it? Have you experienced it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think those doubts, right, always come in uh, at, at some point in your career, and you know, I just try to squash them down and say, look, you know, I've, yeah, I may not know everything, but you know, I can I can learn new things. You know, I, I'm in a new position now. Um, so I, I think it comes up with almost everyone. I, you know, I've, I, there are definitely times when I've, I've felt that creeping up. Um, but uh, fortunately, you know, you just kind of push it down and say, you know, I'm qualified to do this. I've, I've trained my whole life to, you know, think about these problems. And, and if I need to learn something new, I learn something new. And, you know, I, I won't be an imposter for long. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm sure you're aware of the, the Dunning-Kruger effect where it's like, 
if you know a little bit about a subject that you just started then you have all this confidence you're like oh i know everything i need to know and then you as you learn more you you have this idea about oh i there's so much i don't know and i know that i don't know a ton i i try to like think about that and i wonder if simply being cognizant of that helps that imposter syndrome at all just like knowing like this is the default mode of how my brain is probably operating. I just, I don't know. I, I don't know that I have a question. It's just, a, it's just really a yeah. thought. Like, does that, does that ever play in where it's like, okay, I know this is why my brain's operating this way. And then somehow you can circumvent it because you know, you're operating that way. Or are you still just stuck in this rabbit hole of nope? I like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, no, I think I think being self-aware of how that happens, like whenever you kind of dig into a new problem, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm going to take on this new research project. It's going to be fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, you know it, it, and then you think to yourself, you know, I've done this before. It's never as easy or as straightforward as you think it's going right. to be. You know, you think right. about this like, oh, if I do X, Y and Z, you know, this will prove to be true in, in, in this uh, whatever, you know, drug I'm testing or 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 uh, signaling pathway that I'm investigating and cancer cells and then, you know, I've done this enough times. It's never that simple. So mm-hmm. knowing that in advance, I think helps, you know, helps, helps you get through it. <laughs> it I mean, it sounds like just like having a little bit of experience gives you a little more perspective. I, you know, you know, I don't do research, but just thinking about like uh, businesses or if, if I'm building a new business or trying something new, um, like we're doing a kitchen remodel right now. So any new kind of project, regardless of what it is, I always assume I'm going to screw something up. Like that's the only, that's the only thing I'm entirely confident about is that I will screw something up. The rest of it, I hope it goes to plan, but I know at least one thing is not going to go to plan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to anticipate problems and, and road bumps all along the way. And, and I think, you know, going into that with eyes wide open helps helps you, you know, not get frustrated. <laughs> yeah. So you, you made the, the switch from, um, I'll say, like an academic research setting, if that's correct, to yeah. private industry. Um, I assume that jump is not necessarily as straightforward as it might seem. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the, the decision to go that way and then um, maybe some of the things that didn't go quite as planned like we were just talking about? Yeah, I mean, for me, the decision, well, first of all, it's been a long time coming. So, you know, when I transitioned from academic medicine and research to, to industry, I transitioned to a company that I actually helped co-found years earlier and had been, you know, consulting for, for, for quite some time. So it was kind of a, it was a, a very slow process. It took about three years to, to happen and, you know, getting comfortable around the idea and, and thinking about, you know, what I wanted to do. You know, for for me, one of the things that happened in academic medicine, I was I was pleasantly surprised to kind of achieve one of my goals. Um, a, a just to achieve the goal was was very satisfying, but to do it, you know, probably earlier than I thought, which was, you know, to take something that that you know we had worked on in the lab and and turn it into a, a real uh, meaningful outcome for patients. And mm-hmm. and I think once I had done that. Um, you know, I wanted to challenge myself in new ways and, and perhaps 
do it even more. Um, you know, I think realizing in the academic side that it might take a long time to do that again, um, or it may never happen again, but to try and apply what I had learned in that in that process of you know taking a scientific discovery, you know, working on it and and getting it you know basically translating it into a, a therapy for patients was was extremely satisfying, but but then I wanted more. And, and so I thought the best way to do that was, was on the industry side. Mm -hmm. um, and luckily I had this, you know, this vehicle, this company that we had started and, and was growing and, and um, you know, has a great group of, uh, of, of people um, that, that, that's ever expanding. It made the decision easier for me. What was challenging about the decision is that I was giving up seeing patients. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, and you know, that has been, you know, a motivation and an inspiration. I, I treat cancer patients who, for the most part, you know, have metastatic disease, which means that, you know, they're sadly going to likely die from their cancer at some point. The good news is, you know, we've been able to extend survival significantly, but, it, it, you know, it's always hard leaving patients. And mm -hmm. I'm so grateful that I, you know, have been able to take care of wonderful patients over the course of my career. And they'll always serve as a motivation for, for what I do in, in terms of drug development and always keeping them um, as, as the kind of central focus of why I do what I do. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I make a couple of notes or I'm going to lose several of my thoughts here. Um, so, you know, as we, I mentioned in kind of the, the credits for you at the beginning, you know, your PhD is in immunology, but you don't really do that anymore. Um, well, you know, where, where was the switch? Since obviously, you know, there was some, there had to have been a point when you're like, okay, I'm interested in this. And then now you're more oncology cancer focused. Um, does that come, you know, I think you mentioned it kind of thinking about coming back into the work you're doing now, but, but how, how does that switch take place? Yeah. You know, again, there's, there's that naivete uh, when you, when you pick your program, right. So I was probably uh, 23 when I decided that, you know, I, I'm going to do my PhD in immunology and fascinating um, science in, in immunology and, and just so critical now to, to so many fields, whether it's, you know, COVID-19 vaccine research or autoimmune diseases and, and now cancer. And it's just, it, it's such a beautifully intricate system, the human immune system. And I think that's what drew me to it. So mm -hmm. I, you know, again, 23, pick that but you know as I progressed and I and I love doing the research in that area as I kind of progressed um, through finishing medical school and thought about my options for what I wanted to do as a, as a doctor like what type of patients I wanted to see what I wanted to specialize in um, you know I was I was very uncertain what 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 I wanted to do I was pretty sure I wanted to do medicine meaning you know me a medical doctor of some type, whether it was a pediatrician or, or medicine doctor, I didn't really want to be a surgeon. Um, you know, so I went down that route. Um, and it was during residency that I was first exposed to oncology or cancer medicine. I'd really never had the exposure in medical school um, to, a, to a lot of cancer. Um, and, and I had a phenomenal mentor early on in my internship, you know, my first year of, of residency, uh, who really inspired me. Um, he was also an MD, PhD, so another physician scientist. He also mm -hmm. did lung cancer. Um, and, and, you know, I credit him as the reason that I wanted to go into cancer. I just, I, you know, I had a, you know, we had a month long rotation in oncology and, and found him very inspirational. And, you know, the fact that he was managing both a research career and seeing patients. Um, so that's 
when the switch occurred. And at that point, I really wasn't doing a lot of research. So you, you do more specialty training after internal medicine and oncology. And it was during those, those fellowship years in medical oncology that I did more laboratory work with a, a basic scientist who, who studies cancer cell signaling. And that's, you know, where I kind of, you know, retrained, so to speak, my, my research focus and, and, you know, learn more about how, you know, cancer cell signaling works and, 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 you know, it's a critical component to how we think about killing cancer cells selectively. And, and that's when I made the switch. So it was, it was many years later, it was probably in my kind of, you know, I guess late twenties, early thirties, uh, that I, you know, decided to make the switch, but, um, you know, I was, you know, I felt like, you know, what, what more for me, at least what more important problem is there than cancer? You know, when you, when mm -hmm. it doesn't take many patients to see, wow, this is, this is a huge area of unmet need. Yeah. And I've been very fortunate to, you know, train and, and have the early part of my career in a time when there's been just phenomenal advancements in, in cancer um, because of our understanding of the biology. So it's, it's been a, you know, I mean, there's always more to do. I, I tell my patients, like, it's never enough. It's never fast enough because, you know, patients are dying of this disease, but I, you know, it's, it's what inspires me. So um, before I ask you more questions about your research specifically, um, to make sure I'm on the right page, but also that you, the listener, is on the page with us. Uh, I want to get a couple of, like basic things out of the way that are probably um, super mundane for you. But first, cancer is not just one thing, right? Because I know there's this idea that it makes a good slogan, right? Like let's defeat cancer, but it's not a single disease that causes problems. Absolutely. And that, that's a really critical point. You know, I think Nixon started the war on cancer um, and, and, and it was a great idea, right? Here, let's, let's focus energy on this, on this really horrible disease. Um, but, you know, over, over the 40 years, you know, since, since he, 40, 50 years since he's declared the war on cancer, you know, we've, we've understood that it, it, it is a very heterogeneous disease. Not only is there, are there different types of cancers that affect different organs, you know, prostate or breast cancer or lung cancer or others, but even within those diseases, and I, I mostly specialized in lung cancer, it turns out that when we look at lung cancer at the genetic level, it's probably 15 or 25 different genetic subtypes. And, mm -hmm. and that actually, learning that, although it's, it's frustrating in a sense that you have to develop, you know, all these, you know, 20 different therapies for, for lung cancer, it's actually what's allowed us to make the advancements because now we understand the genetics and biology underlying the, the differences. And that has actually been what's helped us, um, uh, you know, understand uh, how to better treat it because we, we did tend to approach it as a bit of monolithic, you know, all lung cancer was the same, all breast cancer is the same. And the more that we understand the uniqueness of different types of cancers and can determine that through various testing methods, the, the better we can actually treat the disease. And then the other kind of uh, basic thing for you to get, I'd like to get out of the way is uh, regarding when we talk about like chemotherapy or um, that kind of, uh, medicine for trying to kill cancer cells. We're not, again, talking about one thing. It's, it's I'll call it a class, but I don't, I don't necessarily mean that in the strict medical sense. I, but so I'll let you explain a little bit more about why we lump everything in that term. 
Yeah, so, so yeah, when I think about therapies for cancer, there, there's many different types, but, you know, broadly, you know, surgery can be a therapy for cancer. Mm -hmm. um, chemotherapy is, you know, dozens of different drugs that work through various mechanisms. I guess the basic way to explain chemotherapy is that chemotherapy tends to better kill rapidly dividing cells than mm -hmm. normal cells. And that's why we use it, right? So the problem with cancer is that they have uncontrolled growth. And, and a lot of chemotherapies take advantage of that and selectively killing them. The problem with, with chemotherapies has historically been that it's largely empiric, meaning that we, we don't really understand why some people respond and why some people don't. And it's hard to pre-select patients that are you know, more likely to benefit from one chemotherapy than another. Mm -hmm. um, and so, that, so chemotherapy is you know, it's a broad class of agents that generally fall under that um, uh, uh, paradigm. What I have focused my career on and where there's been a lot of advancements is targeted therapy, meaning mm -hmm. that you know, the, the mechanism is, is very well understood and we're often able to kind of genetically select patients that that therapy is going to work because it works on you know, one target. It works on one protein in the cell, one gene in the cell. Um, and those um, tend to have fewer side effects because they're so kind of precise. In fact, mm -hmm. precision medicine or precision oncology is a term that, that has become very fashionable because these drugs are, are very precise. Now, the problem is they, they only work in a select number of patients, but because we can select them ahead of, ahead of time, we can say, okay, well, this drug, because it works on this target, we're only going to pick patients whose tumors have that target. And that's actually, again, mm -hmm. what's led to um, a, a lot of successes in cancer. And then, you know, another broad class of therapy is immunotherapy, um, activating the body's own immune system to fight cancer cells. And so, that, again, there are many different types of immune therapies and drugs that are being developed. Um, but as a class, the drugs tend not to work directly at killing cancer cells. They actually more facilitate your own body's immune system to, mm. to kill um, uh, the cancer cells. And then there's radiation therapy and, and lots of other things uh, that, are, that are being developed um, uh, and, and subclasses of each of those classes. But, um, but luckily, all of these tools have their, have their place in, in helping cancer patients. So um, thinking about this is something that I tried to formulate in my brain. And my uh, friend who's a physician had ex explained to me basically how chemotherapy works. When my father was going through a round of chemo a little over a year ago or his rounds. Um, uh, so if I get this wrong, please correct me at any time because my memory is faulty and he'll explain it to me once. Um, but I think as you mentioned, so chemotherapy is trying to, um, kill off faster growing cells. And if I remember correctly, it does that by largely trying to shut down that cell regeneration on, on a broad swath versus a targeted system. So it's problematic in two senses. The one he had mentioned to me um, that slow growing cancers often are not resolved through that kind of therapy because the rate is so slow. Um, but then also you get side effects because you're <laughs> taking out all kinds of cells, not just the cancer cells. So that's kind of where you come in. It seems like when you're trying to target this specific mechanism is what's causing this um, rapid growth or uncontrolled growth in that specific cell, right? 
Absolutely. And yeah, everything that you said is, is, is very true. A lot of slow growing tumors don't respond as well to chemotherapy. One of the reasons you have side effects from chemotherapy is that unfortunately, well, fortunately, I guess there are some cells in your body, body that are continually regenerating cells in the GI tract, cells in the bone marrow. So a lot of chemotherapies cause low blood counts because those are constantly being produced, right? Mm -hmm. New new red blood cells and white blood cells are always being produced and, and the chemotherapies tend to disproportionately affect um, uh, cells like that. We're oversimplifying a bit, but that, that that's in, in true. And, and with targeted therapies, with these precision medicines, you know, sometimes the abnormality in the cancer cell isn't really kind of a, a mechanism of, of or a mechanism that's used um, at all sometimes. And so some of these therapies have very few side effects because the, the abnormality in the cancer cell isn't really found you know, in adult human tissues anywhere. And so you know, those are the best case scenarios because you're, you're really selectively killing the cancer cell and, and barely having any effects on, on other uh, organs or tissues in the body. And that's what we strive for. It's sometimes not possible. But... So can you... Um... Give me, again, as you're mentioning, kind of like oversimplifying things, but that's uh, probably better for me at least because I'm in no sense of the, uh, the word uh, capable of talking about this on your level. Um, can, can you give a little bit deeper overview of that, how that targeted therapy works? Is it is it a sense of that um, that drug goes and targets that very specific cell or is it a cell with a specific mechanism that's happening or, or how does that work? Yeah, I'll, maybe I'll start with one, uh, you know, one, one that I've worked on. So there's, there's a, a gene and a protein called ROS1, R-O-S-1. Um, and it is um, activated abnormally, but kind of a, a genetic rearrangement, a type of mutation. In, in cancer cells. And it's not particularly common. It's about 1% of lung cancer and it's found in other cancers too. And, and the way that this drug works, and this is true of a lot of, of, a lot of other drugs um, and targets, is the drug actually specifically only binds to that target. And it, and it fits like, like a key and a lock. Um, there are other kind of similar proteins on the broad scale. If you looked at, you know, like the crystal structure of these, they, they wouldn't look all that different. Mm -hmm. But at, at the very fine molecular level, that drug is, is just keyed right so that it fits in a pocket and, and that, and it only inhibits that target. Okay. Um, and so, it, you know, in theory, it goes into every cell in your body, but but fortunately, and, and I pick this example intentionally, ROS1 is a, is a protein that, as far as we know, probably has almost no function in an adult. It maybe is important during embryonic development, but in an adult, no one knows what it does. In fact, when you, when you completely remove the gene from mice, the mice are almost perfectly normal. It, it, it's, it, you know, so cancer has found this gene that can support under, you know, unchecked cell growth. Um, but fortunately, it doesn't do anything else. And so when, that, when we give that drug to patients, it goes all over the entire body. It goes into probably every cell in the body, um, but it only turns off that protein um, in the cancer cells and it kills those cancer cells um, selectively. And that's almost an ideal situation um, you know, where the drug you know, is, is so selective and doesn't have any 
um, side effects. There are other drugs that we've um, that the um, uh, cancer community has developed that you know only bind to certain types of cells. Um, you know, actually, this is where immunology and cancer also kind of cross. That you know, a couple decades ago, people realized that you could engineer human antibodies. You know, the, the the things that we normally use to fight viruses mm -hmm. and other infections, um, we can engineer them to bind only to specific cells, and and so they've actually engineered a number of antibodies that are now approved for cancer and they can kill, they only bind to the outside of, of you know, some abnormal cells. And, and then people have actually even further combined that so you can actually attach a chemotherapy drug to it to make it even more potent. So the antibodies themselves can have um, effects in terms of killing cancer cells, but if you attach a chemotherapy drug to it, then it kind of concentrates the chemotherapy um, into the cancer cells. So there's lots of kind of very um, uh, clever ways to, you know, to try and selectively kill cancer cells. That's really the goal, killing these abnormal cells and leaving the normal ones alone, right? So get rid of the cancer and, and try to cause as few off-target, you know, uh, kind of collateral damage to mm -hmm. the patient as possible. I mean, I would assume, like in the example you gave when, when you're taking the antibodies and attaching a chemotherapy uh, drug to it to deliver to a targeted area and just in general with targeted therapies are you seeing because it's targeted because you're not taking this kind of hack and slash like broad swath approach it, do you end up with um, less negative side effects because of that yeah, I'd say you know in general we are we are reducing side effects greatly um, for patients. I, I'd say you know there's still a long way to go. That you know almost all of these still have side effects. Um, you know some are better than others. Um, um, far better than some of the chemotherapies that we've historically used. Um, but it's it's still um, a still a work in progress. Yeah. Um... I can't recall exactly where through um, kind of looking through your research and, and stuff about you. Um, I, I had seen something about cancers becoming resistant to certain therapies and you developing things to try to be more effective against those cancers. So this is something that I was real curious about. Um, and again, I, I, you know, treat me as like a 100 level college student. Um, but thinking about like uh, last week, I was speaking about antibiotics and being in a post-antibiotic world, and you know that makes sense to me that you know the uh, mutations that occur and then they become drug resistant. But then I think about cancer, and in, 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 at least in my head, I think, well, if you know if Jeff has lung cancer and I talk to him like he's not going to give me lung cancer so because I don't see it as a contagion I I guess I fail to grasp how they become resistant to certain therapies so so how does that how does that situation occur yeah, actually, the antibiotics analogy is a is a very good one and one that we've turned to. Um, and in fact, you know, maybe HIV is perhaps like the the best example of trying to understand um, drug resistance. And 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 actually, some of the some of the mechanisms are, are very analogous. So, you know, I mentioned that that lock and key uh, mm -hmm. um, analogy. 
And, and the way to think about it is that one, one type of resistance that crops up with almost all of these um, uh, small molecule inhibitors, like the example I gave you of the ROS1 inhibitor, is that if you change the pocket that that drug binds to by just one nucleotide, so you, one genetic simple you know, uh, change, a C to G, an A to a T, that changes the amino acid and that changes the shape of the pocket. And sometimes that change in the shape of the pocket allows the cancer cell to keep growing because it doesn't affect the function of that protein, but that drug can no longer bind. And that's exactly what happens in, in antibiotic uh, resistance. And okay. so what we, you know, and, and again, at a molecular level, this is relatively easy to tease out. So we can resequence the patient's tumor and find, oh, well, you know, they got this mutation and now you can actually model the, what the picture looks like of the drug binding into the pocket. And you're like, yeah, that, that, spot has changed, the drug no longer fits. And, and that actually has led to new drugs being a slightly different fit that can overcome that resistance mutation. Um, and that has been a successful strategy um, for, for many different types of, of targeted therapies as they, they just keep, you know, it's like a race between the cancer and the drug development companies and, and researchers to try and identify all the potential mutations and then find drugs that um, can fit it. That's, that's one type of resistance. That's actually the easy type to, to um, overcome. Mm -hmm. One of the things we've also researched is, uh, unfortunately, the cancer cell is a lot more complex than a bacteria is. Mm -hmm. um, the bacteria or virus often only has, you know, virus sometimes only has eight or 10 genes. Cancer cells have 20 or 30,000 genes to choose from. And so one of the things that cancer cells can do is say, okay, well, you've, you've, you, you fit the key into the lock perfectly. You've shut down that protein but I've got these other uh, hundreds of genes that I can now mutate and do the same type of thing. And, and that can be a little bit more insidious. And that's where a lot of my research was trying to understand. We call that bypass signaling, right? So that you, 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 the drug has effectively shut down the, the cancer causing gene, but the cancer cell just turns on another one um, instead that can, can keep the cancer going. And you know, unfortunately, when you have cancer, you have hundreds of millions of cancer cells, and, and a lot of this has already occurred, and that one just got lucky. It's like kind of pulling the lever on the jackpot, and, mm -hmm. you know, the cancer cells are, are constantly mutating. That's actually one of the problems of cancer is that it, it mutates almost every time it divides. It probably mutates actually more than every time it divides. Um, and so just by chance, there's often a resistant cancer cell in there to the drug, even if it's very effective. And, and so that's the other type of um, resistance that we've spent a lot of time trying to catalog. And it, the, the good news is, not to make this all grim, is that cancer cells often turn to kind of the same set of genes that they like to turn on to, to get around things. So although there are a lot to choose from, it, it seems like, at least in the area of research that I'm in, they, they tend to focus on, you know, maybe a dozen or so, or, or you know, a handful of pathways that they like to activate. So it's not in and it is achievable to figure this out and, and drug them all. So, so I, I think this actually you, you've already touched in, in probably answered uh, the question I was going to ask is that um, so the, the mutations occurring like potentially during therapy, like a, a, a drugs being delivered may, may be targeted, but just by the nature of cancer and how fast it, you know, is, creating new cells, you, you get that mutation, and then now you have to target that new mutation because of the lack of efficacy, you know, not fitting that key together anymore. 
Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, and and uh, you know, as I said, a, a lot of this is unfortunately predetermined. You know that when you start, the vast majority may be um, effectively killed by your drug, mm -hmm. but just by chance during you know the prior few months before you gave that drug, you know there was one cell out of twenty million that had just the right mutation. Because again, you know, on a, on a broad scale, if you, if these cells are dividing all the time the numbers work in the cancer's favor of, mm -hmm. of having made quite, quote, the right mistake, you know, at, right. at one point in time. So the, if we uh, try to make a, a pie in the sky kind of approach to what you're doing, the idea is that you figure out enough therapies that regardless of what mutation, you know, cancer takes, you're like, okay, well, if green didn't work, then we'll use blue and blue didn't work. So it's time for red and, and, and you just have enough options that there's really nowhere for mutations to take a turn that you're not unable to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think, where maybe the HIV example comes in, right? So right now we've been kind of doing A, then B, then C. Um, and, and that has worked pretty well. I think where the future lies in, in cancer therapy is combining the right combinations of X, Y, and Z to mm. begin with so that the cancer doesn't ever get the chance to develop that resistance. And, and that's really what happened in HIV. First, it was one drug mm. um, and that worked for a short time. And then they added two and that worked a little bit better. And now that you have three, it's very hard. You know, you're not necessarily eradicating the HIV, but it's very hard when you have the, that select pressure of three different drugs mm -hmm. boxing the virus in that it's very hard for it to mutate and I think that's the idea that we like to draw from in cancer as we think forward is can we come up with the right two three drug combination um, to really box the cancer cell in so that it can't get out of that box and it can't mutate and, and still survive um, and, and become resistant you know it's, it's a lofty goal but, but one that I think is one that we're working towards. So does that become like a statistical probability question where, as you mentioned earlier, that, okay, so there's, you know, plenty of options for cancer to choose from, but it often goes to, you know, X, Y, and Z. I think you mentioned a dozen or so uh, options and um, the acronyms I think are listed on your website and Ira had sent those <laughs> over to me. Um, so then is it a matter when we just think of statistics, say, well, if it starts with this particular protein and it's messing with that one we know that you know 90 percent of the time if there's a mutation it's going to be this one and, and, and is that how you come up with the combination yeah and then i i think we have to start challenging ourselves too you know that there are some kind of cancer cell nodes that are you know you know, I, I talked about, you know, maybe a dozen genes. There are some that are, you know, you focus down to like three or four like critical nodes. And the problem is those tend to have a lot more toxicity. They tend to be a little bit more chemotherapy-like because people use them. And the question is, well, if you if you combine them in, in the right, just the right combination, you know, maybe the patient's you know, get a lot more side effects for a short period of time. But if you can, if you can, you know, come up with the kind of right combinations, even if there's more toxicity, can you, can you not allow that, that um, any way out for the cancer cell, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, eliminating the statistical probability and, and making it so it, it's hard, it's hard to imagine that a cancer cell could come up with, 
you know, the right three or four mutations at once to get mm -hmm. out of that box. So then that gets into your statistical probability, right? If you, if you apply enough different selective pressures, statistically, the cancer cell might not be able to get out of those. But, but again, that's more theoretical now. Right, right. There, there, are, there, there are some, I mean, there are some, you know, like pediatric cancers where, you know, we give, you know, very intensive kind of sequential regimens where we hit the cancer so many different ways. And it's, it's a really tough course, sometimes over, you know, one or two years that, that you do are able to do that. And, and, and again, I think, you know, maybe we need to start thinking that way again. I think the doctors in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s were sometimes, you know, willing to kind of push the limits more in, in terms of doing this. And, and occasionally you can cure patients, who, you know, with, with the right combination of drugs. It's, it's interesting to hear about. And, you know, I, like I said, I'm glad you came to talk because you just, I think it's something right now, everybody's, you know, focused on COVID. And I think rightfully so. Um, but even if we get, if or when we get to the point that that's not the top thing on con like the public consciousness, like I think cancer consistently, all the types of cancer consistently stays as this kind of arch enemy, so to speak, of like humanity, where it's like, you know, how are we going to beat this thing? So just on a personal level, it's interesting to hear, you know, the kind of stuff that you're doing and, and trying to make it more precise, even if it's a matter of like, like you mentioned, you know, I think with Ross one, you said it was like 1%. Well, that's still 1% of people that, you know, that, okay, you can get a targeted therapy. Now let's move on to the next percent. And, and maybe it takes a while, which it probably will. Anything like this does take a while, but I don't know. It gives me some amount of hope. It's always nice to feel, feel a little hopeful that people are working on things like that. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, going back to the, the COVID, uh, you know, thing, I think, you know, it just highlights the importance of medical research The the two vaccines, you know, the MRNA vaccines mm -hmm. from, from Pfizer and, um, and Moderna, you know, Moderna was working on mRNA vaccines for, for cancer research, right? Mm -hmm. So those actually, so again, the, the cross-pollination that happens, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's an amazing time to, to be in science and, and our understanding is so much greater. And these things, you know, I think it just highlights the importance of medical research because, you know, had it not been perhaps for Moderna doing research in cancer vaccines with this mRNA technology, you know, maybe we wouldn't have, you know, a, a, a COVID vaccine right around the corner. So. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's those, like, it, it's, it's kind of a banal way to put it, but it's like happy accidents. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't an intended, but, but then you can see the crossover effect and go, oh, hey, maybe let's let's try this. Um, Robert, as we're starting to wind down on time here, um, you actually get to be the very last person this year that I asked this question to. I'm asking everybody this year a, a single question that's kind of pervasive across all athletic disciplines. Um, so I'd like your opinion on what you think the purpose of sport is. That's a great question. Um, I, oh, so many things. I, I feel like it, I feel like it gives you, for me, I guess it gives me focus. Um, and, 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 you know, I, for, 
swimming is kind of a unique support. It's very sensory deprived, right? Mm -hmm. Especially this summer, I spent I spent my time, you know, transitioning from a pool because the pools were all closed to swimming open water. So my 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 lap was now a kilometer, um, uh, and so um, it's very sensory deprived. And for me, I, I find that it allows me to kind of think and and recenter and, and focus. Um, um, you know, some people see it as a distraction. I I think I you know it, it gives gives me an outlet to um, to focus and 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 unplug you know especially swimming as I said it's very unique you know I don't I, I can't listen to music I you know I can't talk to other people while I'm running side by side it, you know my, my you also learn how to become a very good uh, you know 10 second conversationalist when you're doing interval training in the pool you know you have conversations yeah. that like <laughs> broken up into, into very short pieces but yeah, so for me, I think um, it's about focus. And maybe that's why I gravitated towards swimming is I, I like the kind of unplugging, the solitude, no phones, no music, no no anything but me and my thoughts. There is, there is something nice about that. And, and I actually find myself when I'm in the pool, um, you know, my, my eyes are open, but if I'm, if I'm really paying attention to what I'm doing, I'm not really seeing anymore. Like, it's I, the lines there. I'm not really looking at it. Sometimes I even like will close my eye, like the eye that's in the pool. And that's more of a technique thing. Just making sure both my eyes aren't coming out when I breathe. But it, it's like, I'm not paying attention to the visual input so much as I am just like inside my own head and how do I feel? And you can't really do that with running. You definitely can't do it cycling. So yeah, I think, I think you're definitely onto something there where it's like you can focus and let go of one of the, at least one of these senses of maybe several, you can't really hear much either and kind of zone in on just what you're doing. So I'm, I'm definitely with you there. Um, Robert, if people want to catch up on your research, see what you're posting on Twitter, where can they find you? So I'm on uh, Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, my lab has a, a page on Facebook, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm all over social media. And if you're on the YouTube version, we'll have uh, Robert's handle on the screen, otherwise we'll try to keep it in the uh, description so you can find him easily. Um, Robert, thanks again for hanging out with me, telling me a little bit about you do. Um, give me a little hope for the future. That's always nice to have, especially in times like this. Um, so I hope you have a great weekend and have a uh, great ski trip. All right. Thank you so much, Jesse. I appreciate you having me.